I decided to continue with the life of Hezekiah. You remember that we began uh, last, last Sunday talking about Hezekiah's experience um, when uh, the king of Assyria invades Judah and surrounds it. And uh, it seems that it's a hopeless situation. But Hezekiah turns to the Lord. We saw Hezekiah go from being uh, somebody who uh, kind of delegates his problem to the prophet Isaiah. He's, he tells his uh, ambassadors, go and t- uh, tell Isaiah to pray to his God. And see if his God will help us to becoming even more desperate as the king of Assyria affirms his intention to destroy Judah. And finally, he's forced to go himself into the temple and lay before the throne of God this letter of declaration of war um, that the king of Assyria has handed Judah. Um, and uh, as he takes ownership of his situation, and this is, what the important, this is the important principle here about taking ownership of your situations and your crises, then the Lord responds in a definitive, final sort of way and gives a wonderful uh, verdict of deliverance, including uh, destroying uh, the Assyrian army. 185,000 soldiers are destroyed overnight by the angel of the Lord, and uh, all kinds of blessing comes uh, to Judah. But here's another moment. After that, something happens. Another crisis comes into the life of this man. So very quickly, let me just go to chapter 20, 2 Kings. Another crisis. And what I want to talk to you about is, you know, in this year, but not just in this year, in your life as a whole, about not taking your crises sitting down, not folding when... Uh, crisis and difficulty and, and this for, misfortune strikes your life or the life of your loved ones. When trials come, don't take it sitting down. Do something about it. Take action. Take initiative. And cry out to the Lord. And so in, verse, in chapter 20, 2 Kings, he, it says, In those days, what days? The days after the invasion, the day after the miraculous deliverance. In those days, Hezekiah became ill. And was at the point of death. I want, to, I want us to see three things. Number one, a crisis. Number two, an action. What Hezekiah does in the result of that. And number three, a result. What happens as a result of Hezekiah's action? So this crisis, he becomes ill. And not just any kind of illness. He was at the point of death. It's an extreme situation. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die and you will not recover. In case that there was any doubt about, uh, you know, his situations, not only are you going to die, you will not recover. Uh, You know, so it's like fulminating. It's It's an absolutely definitive death sentence. And this comes from the Lord. Not from the doctors, from the Lord. You are going to die. He sends a prophet to tell him that. What does Hezekiah do? It says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. There's an action there, a desperate, powerful, passionate action. And this is how he prayed. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. 
He reminds God of something. Now, God doesn't need any reminder. God knows what Hezekiah has done. God knows what kind of a man he is. But sometimes we need to, you know, remind, quote, unquote, the Lord. We need to strengthen our prayers with declarations of fact and, and, and of foundation. Because what does that do? That strengthens our faith as we pray. We have, we have a judicial reason to come to the Lord. We have justification in that sense. We're never perfect, and we never earn God's blessing. But, but there is something that you engender when you generate, when you remember what enables you to come to the Lord, whether it's a word of Scripture, whether it's a life that you have led, whether it's an action that you have undertaken in the past. This gives you authority and conviction and passion to come before the Lord. Just remember what I have done, Father. I have walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion. I have done what is good in your eyes. And then he's, and it says that Hezekiah wept bitterly. I mean, that's a heavy word. He wept bitterly. I mean, he sobbed. He, he heaved with emotion. And there's a teaching there. So that is the action. What is the result? What happens when we come before the Lord in that concentrated sort of way? It says, before Isaiah had left the middle court, that is, before he has left the, the, the place of, uh, of the palace, the, the, the property of the palace, he's halfway out of the palace quarters. The word of the Lord came to him. You know, isn't it wonderful when you pray to the Lord and you get an, an instant reaction? That's the best, of course. Sometimes it won't happen that way. Sometimes it'll be a long, protracted effort but man, it's so good sometimes when you pray to the Lord and, and before you know it, things just clear up and then you see God's uh, extraordinary quick action. And, and this is what the Lord says. He came to him, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people. There's something there. I mean, if I don't get a chance to unpack this whole sermon, I think it's important to, to see God's esteem for this man. It doesn't just say, go and tell Hezekiah. He says, go and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people. Don't you see a bit of uh, good um, will and appreciation on the part of God? He is uh, giving Hezekiah his due status, his rank, the ruler of my people. This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, the God of your father David. That's another recommendation, another endorsement on the part of God. Your father David with whom, by the way, Hezekiah had identified by being faithful to the Lord. In another passage where it talks about Hezekiah's biography, it says that he walked in the ways of his father David. He did according to the ways of David. So he, 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 it's so good when we honor the good example of those who have preceded us. When we honor um, a congregation or, or, or a spiritual father, or, or our parents who are giving us a good example. We walk in that, and there's a power in that. There's, there's a prestige, spiritual prestige, in honoring those who have come before you, your elders. It says, um, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. You know, sometimes we think that our tears do not affect this uh, super independent God. You know, there are a lot of uh, theologies of God that uh, 
teach, and not necessarily the Christian God, but many others, the Hindu, particularly Hinduism and Buddhism, where God is this indifferent, self-sufficient, totally independent, completely abstracted entity who doesn't get involved in the world that we inhabit. And um, the Christian God, the Judeo-Christian God is the very opposite. God is a God who is merciful, compassionate, involved in his creation. He is immanent. He, he, he lives within his creation while at the same time being totally separate from it. But he, he loves, he speaks with and to his creation, and he is deeply involved and interested in his creation on a daily basis in a very detailed way. And he's involved in your life and in your struggles and in your needs and in your dramas. Never think even for a moment that you are fighting your battles by yourself. You know, God wants you to cultivate this sense of total intimacy with this God who created you. The Bible says over and over again, you know, you, you formed me in the womb of my mother. And, and every little detail of my body was shaped directly by you. You know, this is the God that we have. And I hope that this is the God that you feel that you have in your life. That you are deeply related to him. That you have intimacy with this God. Christianity is not about coming into the church on Sunday and getting sort of artificially connected with God. It is about living every day of your life with this consuming sense that my God's eyes are on me. He's aware of me. He's aware of my needs. He, he, he's interested in my formation. He's using every situation in my life to shape me. Even the difficult times, it's part of his soldier training. It's part of his character training. Nothing happens in the life of a believer by sheer coincidence or inertia. There's always purpose in everything. God is always intimately involved. He's always watching. His eyes are on you. There's a verse that I'm trying to remember. I know it in Spanish, but it speaks about, you know, I, 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 I will instruct you and I, and I will teach you the way you shall walk. And it says, I shall fix my eyes on you. This God sees Hezekiah's drama. He sees Hezekiah's agony. He sees not only his, uh, his action physically, uh, of turning to him, he also sees his tears. And, you know, tears are good. Maybe, I, as I say, it's unfortunate. I, I, you know, we need to find, a, I don't know. Man, but anyway, let me, let me not get into that. It's too bad because there's so much in this passage that needs to be unpacked. Uh, I want you to understand this year, you're not fighting your life alone. If nothing else I can say, and also put emphasis into your petitions and your prayers. Put uh, oomph when you pray to the Lord. Conviction. Expectation of an answer. Take God seriously and take yourself seriously. Your actions and your feelings affect God. God can be affected by your prayers. This is one of the great insights of this passage. Can you imagine the most extraordinary... Uh, how, how can you conceptualize God? The universe lives within him. That's how big he is. And yet, you have a lever that can affect God's heart and his actions and his determinations. That's how powerful you are and your prayers are and your actions and your feelings and your emotions. That's how much agency you have as a child of God. You can affect God's heart. And you, you can even change his decrees. 
Because here we have a mystery. Isaiah comes at the initiative of God himself, who has decided sovereignly that Hezekiah's time is up. And God is uh, considerate enough to have his prophet go and tell his king, buddy, your time is through. Pack your bags, get ready, because you're, you're leaving. So if you have a will to make, go ahead and, and, and distribute your, your belongings. If you have a, a king to succeed you, get him on the, tr on the throne, get everything in order, I'm taking you home. I mean, this is a decree from this sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And, uh, you know, to think for a moment that you can change God's heart. And uh, these words are delivered in the most um, resolute and absolute sorts of terms. You will die and you will not recover. This is how clear God is. And again, this is a mystery that theologians and philosophers have broken their heads over for centuries, trying to justify theologically and logically how we can change God's heart. If the Bible says that, you know, everything that God says is, is definitive and perfect, and he knows the, 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 the future and, and, and the past, did God know at that moment what was going to happen? When he's telling Hezekiah, you are going to die, did God know that Hezekiah was going to pray to him? And that then he was going to heal him, heal him. And you know, this is why it's, so, it's such a mystery. And this is why theologians have such a hard time dealing with this thing of a sovereign God and free agents, free human beings, and a God who knows the future down to the last detail, but also a God who sometimes gives us to believe that, you know, we can affect him. And don't let yourself be too affected by all these, these uh, you know, these uh, dilemmas and these conundrums. Um, the important thing is this. The Bible tells me that when I'm in a situation of need, I can affect God's heart. I can change my situation. And don't get yourself tangled up about, you know, all the other theological stuff that's above your pay grade anyway. You know when we'll resolve it? When we get to heaven. And when we know about time and space. You know, quantum physics tells us that time and space is just an illusion. Um, and that, uh, you know, there are parallel universes and uh, things can happen simultaneously that seem not to be possible. Uh, an electron can be both a particle and a wave, on and on and on. So let the, let the physicists deal with that, okay? Um, but we here on earth and in our time know this. When you're dealing with a situation, a financial need, an addiction, um, a, a mistake that has ruined your life, a, a difficult uh, future that you don't know how you're going to resolve it and get out of some dilemma. Just know that your prayers are important and that your, and the quality of your prayers and the quality of your actions and the nature of your actions as you appeal to God, they have an impact on your life and on your situation. And that if this God somehow is touched by your appeal, then you got what you need. The solution will come. And this is what should um, uh, dictate our actions when we find ourselves in a time of crisis 
and of need. So you see, Hezekiah, there, there are certain principles, you know, that, that the, the first thing that you see here is the same thing that Hezekiah did back when he's uh, uh, besieged by the king of Assyria. This is what he does now. The first thing is he sees a need. God has told him something that is absolutely unchangeable. Hezekiah takes action. Hezekiah cries out to the Lord. I'm not even going to say he prayed it. Because prayer can be sometimes, you know, such a spiritual sounding word. No, he just cried out. He, he appealed to the Lord. He turned his eyes to him. The first thing you need to do, brothers and sisters, live a life of prayer. Know that prayer changes things. Prayer is not just something religious that you do. Prayer is a specific act. It's a declaration of war. It, it, it is a, a moving of the spirit. It is something that you generate from inside, and you just simply direct your humanity to the Lord in whatever form. It may be a cry. It may be a weeping. It may be words that are coherent and well-organized. It may be an action, throwing yourself on the floor, whatever it is. But do not take your crises standing, you know, or sitting down, in other words. Don't fold when crises come. Get up and start fighting. And name your giants and name your crisis and bring it to the Lord over and over again. This is this idea that we see when Hezekiah comes um, with the letters of uh, war that the Assyrian king have sent him. He walks into the temple. He comes before the altar and he throws, he must have thrown it down. I don't think it was a gentle kind of, oh, you know, very soft and very delicately. No, he just took the letters, threw them down before the altar. And there is no more um, eloquent expression of what prayer is than that. Taking your tragedy and casting it before the altar of God. Whatever form that might take. Here, Hezekiah does something. He turns himself against the wall. And again, these are things that take a long time to unpack. So he does two or three things. He, he, He appeals to the Lord. He doesn't just say, oh, well, that's what, Lord, that's what God said. Amen. You know, if he said it. I mean, how many of us really would have the, 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 the gumption to, um, if, if, we, if God says, you're going to die, get yourself ready. Say, okay, Lord, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I, you know, we, we kind of uh, become very spiritual and, yes, okay, Lord, you will be done. No. Sometimes, you know, you got to really, you got to be a little insolent. God, God appreciates a little insolence every once in a while. When it's well directed, because he, he's honored by that. It, it, it makes him feel that somehow we believe that he's there. You know, I don't know if you ever had your, your food taken by a grandchild from your plate. You know, if you're, if you're a grandfather or grandmother, you know, what do you do? You laugh. If he's a little kid, now if he's 15 years old, that's a different story. But you know, if he's two or three and he comes and grabs something from your plate, you laugh. And you say, man, yes, that's, that's my grandson. Yeah, look, he's got, he, he's got character and so on. Well, you know, God sometimes appreciates when we importune him in that way, when we test him, when we, like, show that we really believe that he's real. So um, Hezekiah turns against the wall. I mean, imagine that moment as, as if it were a cinematic image. You have this king lying in his royal bed, the prophet walks in, gives him this uh, dictum of death, and then he walks out. And this 
powerful man, this king, just he's, he's looking, he's lying down, looking toward the room, but now in his despair, he turns to the wall. Do you, do you see how much uh, despair he must have felt at that moment? He turned to the wall because all he wanted to have was just nothing in front of him. He wants to turn. When you do that mentally, what you are doing is you're denying the world in order to have enough inner space to dedicate yourself to your tragedy and to your action. So he turns to the wall. And I think that's an important element, you know. Uh, I, I, you see this over and over again in Scripture. This idea that in order to enter into a more profound level of uh, relationship with God and dialogue with God, you have to, before you turn to God, you have to turn away from the world. In order to have enough concentration and enough energy for the task that is ahead. And, you know, it, it speaks about many things. I've spoken earlier about the consecration, that we want to have a consecrated church. God, in this 21st century, needs, because I think God wants to do extraordinary things in the next few years, but he will need soldiers. Yes, uh, Giovanni, God needs soldiers. God needs people who are radical for the kingdom. You know, a, a lot of American and Western Christianity is about faith as a condiment. Faith as, as a, you know, an extra thing in your table and in your cooking. Like salt or garlic or cumin. Just one condiment of many condiments. I'm telling you people, your Christianity is the only thing. That matters. Everything else should be secondary. And your relationship with your church should be essential. People of God, remember this. This is your, your, uh, this is your army. This is your uh, base. And, and I think a lot of uh, sophisticated 21st century Christians, Western Christians in particular, are very much into their church is simply an addition. And some of them are very faithful in many ways. But it really, your church, your community, your faith community, your actions that you engage in through your church should be the, the, the primordial thing in your life. Amen. That may sound uh, scandalous and challenging to you. But this is what I think is the, the secret of why in Africa, in Latin America... In China, in the Philippines, in South Korea, believers of those countries have been able to uh, turn their nations around for the kingdom. It's because they have learned the secret of consecration, concentration, turning away from the world and turning toward God. They have learned that their Christianity is the only, it is the main, main, main thing and you have to, in order to secure enough uh, space in your computer, you got to take a lot of stuff out. If you are concerned about the world and about, uh, you know, if, if the world is as important to you, whether subconsciously or consciously as your Christianity is, don't expect any great thing. This is what James says. You know, if, you, if you're going to pray, pray with great certainty, pray with great conviction because... 
don't believe, don't think that if you, if, if you pray with doubt and a double spirit, you will receive anything from the Lord. Says, the man of double spirit or of double uh, mind, the double-minded God, uh, person is like the, the, you know, the wave of the sea that is buffeted and thrown about by the wind. There are many believers, forgive me, even here today like that. And God needs Hezekiahs who will turn their eyes away from the external reality and into that virtual space of concentrated spirituality and commitment to the Lord and to their tasks, to their jihads, <laughs> to, use a, to their causes, to their fights, to their journeys. That is the only prayer that God answers. That is the only Christian that God is really proud of. Those are the ones that uh, get the spoils of the battle. Those are the ones that have their medals saying what they have done and what they have achieved through their Christian journey. And for, to me, this, this idea of absolute consecration and uh, concentration on the task is uh, personified by this action of turning your face toward the wall and bringing your cause before the Lord. People of God, it is important. You got to retreat from the world in order to enter into intimacy with God. There are many examples that I could give you of that. It's so crucial. Number two, he does something that's, again, you would say it's dishonorable. He weeps bitter, bitterly um, in, in uh, delivering his prayer. I imagine, you know, the, 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 the blanket and, 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 and his pillow were stained by his tears. And this powerful man was won battles before in the Lord. He's not afraid, he's not ashamed to weep to cry I, years ago I asked the Lord Father teach me how to cry and I think he responded uh, too enthusiastically <laughs> you know um, but uh, many of us need to learn how to weep many of us learn, need to learn how to shed deep deep tears abundant tears and to find that emotional space that plays within us where we cry out to the Lord in, in, this, in our despair. I'm telling you this, that uh, the key to powerful prayers is depth and intensity. There have been times in my prayer life, and I think some of you can uh, assent to that, when my prayer has reached a point of uh, white hotness, not just red hot, no, white hot, incandescence, laser-like fixation and when I have struck that profundity that depth of emotion when I stop and I wipe my tears I know that I don't even need to pray anymore because God has heard and God has answered many times the problem with this us is with, the, with us and not so much with God and you know many of us are fighting all kinds of addictions and um, spiritual strongholds and habits of mind that have uh, enslaved us for decades sometimes. And many of us are fighting all kinds of situations, relationships that uh, impoverish us and create all kinds of difficulties in our lives. And, you know, I find that many times, and I have said this before, I believe, 
that um, many times God wants to take us through a process of peeling away layers of compromise that are hidden in our subconscious. So that many times we're praying to God, but really there are parts of our will that are not aligned with our prayers. So in our superficial consciousness, we say, yes, I want God to free me. I want God to break this addiction. I want God to uh, solve my solution. I want God to to deal with this uh, relationship that is complicating my life and impoverishing me spiritually. But you know, deep inside, you discover many times that um, no, you are not really fully aligned with your prayer. And there are secret holding backs that we have inside ourselves. And so we're divided. We're double-minded. This is what the Bible speaks about. And God will not be fooled or lulled into... um, Yeah, He will not be fooled into uh, somehow acquiescing to a prayer that is less than resolute. Sometimes He might do it out of His sheer mercy. But as we grow, He will expect more of us. And He will expect complete alignment with our prayers. Because God is a, you know, the, the, the spiritual world is a judicial world where all the papers have to be in order. If one paper or two are not in order as you submit your petition before the Lord, they'll send them back to you. And by the way, the devil also knows exactly about that. He is, he is the legalist par excellence. When the devil knows that you are not completely yielded over to your petitions and to your need for deliverance, he will say, I still, have, I, I still have room. I still have legal right to exercise dominion. So again, much of, the, much of the task for you and for me is getting to that point in our will and our emotions where we turn our eyes to the wall and we weep bitterly. And, and we say, I am tired of this giant coming every day into my life and denouncing the God that I serve and saying he has no power to deliver you. You have to come to the point where you hate your sin. You have to come to the point where you hate your addiction. You have to come to the point where you hate this person that is uh, having too much influence in your life when only God should be ruling your life. And you have to come to that point where you say, either I, I, Lord, either I am delivered from this or I die. Take me away. You have to come to that point of white-hot denunciation of your sin or your addiction or your poverty or your overweightness or whatever it might be. You have to come to that point where you name your giant. I was asking uh, Sam here. That may seem random what I just said, by the way, but it is, it is important because all these things, they hold us back. They hold us back. Hey, how you doing? You like what I'm saying? And you want to be closer to it. Is that it? Yeah. Amen. She's saying yes. Look at that posture there. <laughs> anyway, people of God, um, we, we, need, we need to come to, to that, that point of absolute conspiracy. And when we do that, God will then answer. He will bring his answer into our life. And this is what God is saying to us this morning. Let us uh, name our giants. What I was going to say before I was delightfully interrupted here in my, in my sequence of thought was uh, 
I heard this uh, phrase from Mr. Rogers. Apparently, he says, if you can name it, you can tame it, or name it and tame it. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know if he was preaching a sermon at that point. Or was th- he was thinking in scriptural terms, but it's a beautiful idea. You have to name your struggle. You have to name your cause. You have to identify it. Sometimes you have to turn to the wall in order to be able to visualize what it is exactly that you're fighting with. You have to describe it by name and last name and middle name and social security number. You got to know what you're fighting. You have to take time to map it out. And then when you have located it in your spiritual sight, then and only then, fire. Do not fire until you see the whites of their eyes. You have to come to that point and ask the Lord to take you there. To that point of conviction, expectation, denunciation, hatred for whatever it is that is enslaving you and keeping you down. And then when you got that, weep bitterly in the sense of bring it before the Lord. Because God loves passion. God loves tears. God loves laughter. God loves complete commitment to your cause. And this is what we often do not have. Oh, may the Lord bring us into that place of complete conviction. Would you lower your, your head for a moment, close your eyes, turn to the wall right now. Name your giant. Name your cause. You know, we, we talk about the New Year's resolutions. I'm gonna, I, I want to be a little more deliberate than that. Yes, it's life resolutions. It's resolutions for this year, but also for life as a whole. Where, where, where is your cause? Where is that thing that you got to tame? Where is that difficulty that you're fighting with? Where is that fight that you're engaged in that has been brought to you? You haven't sought it. It's been brought to you. What are you going to do? Are you going to just stand there or, or, or fold before it? Or are you going to turn your eyes to the wall? And weep before the Lord and cry out to him and change his mind and bring an answer and and dispel doubt, fight against doubt, denounce doubt. I, I know it's difficult, but try to achieve that place of complete resolution. This is what God wants to honor. I think God wants to do extraordinary things in this group and in our congregation as a whole and in this city. And in this world right now, you know, uh, Christianity, I don't want to, I promise you I won't get into another subject, but you know, the world is ours to lose as Christians. People are talking about, you know, we've lost the culture wars and this and that. And, you know, we have so many wimps in the Christian world these days. No, the world is ours to lose. The battle for the soul of the world is ours to lose right now. I think God wants to do extraordinary things in our time. And it all depends on a resolute Christianity. It all depends on resolute believers who have, who have, who know that God has said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my people. It doesn't matter how desperate the situation seems. It doesn't matter how many kings of Assyria are surrounding Christianity in our time. What is required are resolute people, people of the wall, people who turn their eyes to the wall, people who can weep bitterly, People who who have strong passions. And Lord, take us there. Lord, take me there. Lord, take my church there. Lord, take your people there. Take us out of Egypt. Take us out of an enslaved mentality. 
and teach us how much power we have, how much agency we have, how much authority we have to affect your heart. And I call upon you, Lord, to strengthen us now. Strengthen your people. Give us boldness. Give us conviction. Give us uh, desperation, Father. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, strengthen, strengthen your people. Father, we yearn for a people who are furious, a people who are zealous, a people who are desperate, a people who are feverish for your kingdom. Awaken us, Father. Break the chains in our minds. Break the mediocrity. Break the lukewarmness. Break the half-heartedness and turn us into ferocious Soldiers and, and an army, a good, loving, kind, but ferocious army, willing to give our lives for the gospel and for other souls to be saved. Change us, change us, change us. Turn us into people of the wall, Father, this morning. And, and we, we revel in the hope that you are allowing to to be generated in our hearts. We have great expectation about the future, Father. We will not die. We will live. We will prosper. We will do great exploits for you. The best is still ahead. Your promises are so good for this time, Father. It is not disaster that awaits us. It's goodness. And we, we celebrate that, Father. We welcome it. We welcome your joy. We welcome your blessing. We welcome your good spirit this morning. And we embrace it. Lion of Judah embraces the roar of the lion, not the whimper of the defeated, Father. We will be an army for you, and we will do great exploits in your name, and we will honor this great Father who has created us in his image. Oh, Jesus, we worship you this morning. I declare a spirit of boldness. Now, receive it in Jesus' name. Embrace it in Jesus' name. Come on. If you're half asleep, wake yourself up. Shake yourself into receptiveness right now. In Jesus' name, you are, you are being changed. You are being transformed. I don't care if you're four years old. I see this little kid raising his hand there. I, I hope it's, it's, it's in assent to what I'm saying. Amen. Because you're never too young. You're never too young. You're never too passive. Come on. Embrace something extraordinary this year. Embrace something that will frighten you. Come on. Something that will delight your father because of its bigness and its impossibility. And, and embrace greatness this morning. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. 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 Come on. Embrace greatness in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. We worship you.